Father God, we just thank you right now for the cross. Would you get glory this morning as you hear our voices in unison singing the praise of your name? And would you, by the power of your spirit, show us your word today so that we can be conformed to it, glory in the cross, and be changed this week to reflect your nature to the world around us. And I'll ask you to pray in your son's name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jared Boyd. I'm the student pastor here at Westwood, and I get the honor of filling in for Pastor Kenneth today as he and his wife are in the Holy Land. They're in Israel, and they're posting a bunch of pictures, which is really cool, but at the same time, it's making us all jealous. If you follow them on social media, you're like, come on, man. You know, at least invite me. He invited his wife instead of me. Oh, well, just a lowly student pastor. Um, if you've ever climbed a mountain, then you know, and I'm not talking about like Oak Mountain kind of mountain. I'm talking about like a mountain, like a Rocky Mountain out west where there's 13,000, 14,000, sometimes 15,000 foot peaks out there. If you've ever climbed that, that's called the summit. And it's at the summit that you have these incredible vantage points from 360 degrees where you're able to see landscapes form and, and you're able to see from ways like miles and miles out, storms rolling in. You're able to see roads that you thought were straight or actually crooked. It's amazing the views that you have, especially if you've watched a sunset or a sunrise from these incredible summits. It's been said that Romans 3, 21 through 26, the passage we are studying today, is the summit the Everest summit of the Bible. It is the highest height passage of the Bible because from it, we have the clearest gospel message. It's Paul's masterpiece. And so as we look at Romans 3, 21 through 26, we're going to see vantage points, I, I pray, of our lives this week and how we can more clearly see the gospel reflecting in, in all of our lives. We can see the Bible more clearly as a result of this passage. It is beautiful. And so I want us to read Romans 3, 21 through 26 today and then look at what it means, especially for our lives this week. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ through all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So right out the gate in this passage, we have this small little phrase, but now, that carries a lot of weight to it. it it's, the, it's the example of a massive shift that's happening in the book of Romans from Paul. Up to this point, this beautiful phrase shows us that everything behind it is bad news. Up to this point in Romans, Paul's argued that everyone is under sin's condemnation. 
Non-Jews, God's, God's chosen people, the Jewish people, they're under sin. Non-Jews, Jew, Gentiles, and Greeks, another name for them right above this passage, under sin's condemnation. Everyone is under sin. And he makes this grand conclusion by really driving home his point in verses 10 through 18. 10 through 12, we'll read real quick to show how guilty we are before God. This is what Paul says, verses 10 through 12 of Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Everyone is guilty. We have to lay that foundation for us to understand the significance of our summit that we're about to climb here in Romans 3. You will never grasp the heights of this summit, Romans 3, 21 through 26, until you grasp the depths of your sin problem. But that's the problem with many of us. We, we don't really resonate with the depth of our sin. Even the word sin doesn't really resonate with us. We, we kind of think of sin, when we think of that word, we typically think of the, the really bad things, the really bad, bad things that people do or sins. When Romans 3.23 really crystallizes what the word means, it's missing the mark, it's falling short. It's a complete and utter failure. It's not that we don't just hit the bullseye on the dartboard. It's, it's, we missed the board. It's an absolute fail. It's a rebellion against a perfectly holy God, and that's the problem. It's what R.C. Sproul called cosmic treason. A high king has set a standard, and we have not said, great, I'll submit. We've said, no way, my way. Sin corrupts who we are. 13 through 18 in, in Romans 3 expounds upon how no one's righteous. It, says, it tells us what all is affected. It says our hearts are corrupt, our feet go in, in, in wrong directions, our, our mouths are corrupt. Everything about us is corrupt. Our entire being is corrupt. So sin corrupts who we are, but it doesn't just corrupt who we are. It condemns what we have done. It condemns what we have done. Our record is bad. It's not just that our hearts are bad, that our lips are bad, our feet are bad, our hands are bad, our eyes are bad. Our record is bad. It produces bad things. And that sin, that condemnation cries out for punishment against this holy God. It's crying out for death. Romans 6, 23, wages of sin is, is death. And so God must punish sin. Every sin will be punished. And because God is holy and righteous, not punishing sin would go against his holy and righteous character. He has to punish every sin. This is why Habakkuk 1.13 says, you of God, you who are pure eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. And because he's righteous, Romans 2.6 tells us that he will render to each one of us according to our works. And that is a very frightening passage. Because every single one of our works, every single thing behind closed doors, in our thoughts, in our minds, everything we've ever done will be rendered the penalty of death. And it says in Romans 3.20, there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do. For by works of the law, no human will be justified, meaning declared righteous in his sight. But now those sweet words come in to rescue us. Our, our condition was condemnation, but now. 
Our situation was sour, but now. Our destination was death, but now. But now. If we can't live righteously, though, how can we possibly be declared right before this holy God? How can we be declared right? Martin Luther says it this way. Here is a problem which needs God to save it. I love that simplicity. This is the only hope. It needs God to save it. So, but now, continuing on, verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. These First two words of righteousness has the same root for several, about seven different times it's used in this one passage. But these two meanings of righteousness here don't mean, there's two, there's two possible meanings. The first is the characteristic of righteousness. So God in his being is, is righteous. He makes all the just right decisions. That's not the meaning here. In this context, in verses 21 and 22, righteousness here means that he has a standard that's right. It's a righteous requirement And it's that second meaning that's found here, which is why Paul takes the time to remind us again in verse 23, you've fallen short of that standard. It would read like this, in other words. Here's how verse 21 could read. But now, the life that we must live in order to be right with God has been made known apart from the law. The problem is we tend to think, again, of sin as just kind of a whoopsie with God. Just some small negative points on our record. And and on the opposite end, we think of good deeds, the good things that we do, as positive points on our record. And non-Christians and Christians alike struggle with this line of thinking. A non-Christian might say it a little different. They might say it something like this. Okay, I might have some bad strikes on my record with God, but I feed the the poor, I help the homeless, I've never cheated on my wife, I keep a healthy diet. Like I'm a I'm a good, I've got some a lot of good points on my record. A Christian might put it this way. I might have some bad strikes on my record with God this past week, but I read my Bible every day and I'm here on Sunday mornings. Right? I I am a faithful wife or husband. I do all these things. I don't drink too much alcohol. Like, I'm pretty good. Like, I've got some good points on my record. Like, God should be pleased by that. You were supposed to do those things. Like, that's, that's not above and beyond. <laughs> that's the righteous requirement. You were supposed to feed the poor. You were supposed to not get drunk. You were supposed to do all of those things on our really good brightest moments list. None of that earns us positive points for God. In other words, if the line is here, the only thing we're doing is falling short. There's no positive points to make up the line. There is never one moment of your life, your best and brightest moment, where God looks down and says, man, that was impressive. Never. He's never impressed by anything that you've ever done. You can't score good points with God because you're simply doing the requirement. It's satisfactory. We don't reward our sons 
for taking out the trash. That's just part of living at the home, son, all right? You don't, your daughter gets home from school. You don't reward them for not being a bully that day. That's just called satisfactory. Thanks for being a decent human being. You don't reward, here's some candy. Good job not being a bully. You don't do that. That's just the, the requirement for life. There are no good deeds that earn you positive points on your score sheet with God. He is never impressed. We always simply miss the mark. But here's why this is good news. Because verse 22 says that the life that we must live in order to be right with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not our best that pleases God. It is faith. So it says, it's not through what you can or can't do, it's through faith. But now there is a way to hit the mark, and it's not by throwing darts, it's by believing in the one who did hit the mark. We are declared right before God by faith in the son who was right. When my three-year-old son Judson brings home a piece of artwork, and I have no idea what they are half the time. Like, I'm like, I don't know what that is. Unless there's like already like an outline sketch, I know what it is. But if it doesn't have one, I'm like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what that is. Son, is that a duck? And he's like, Daddy, that's you. I'm like, <laughs> I had no idea. I, don't know. I didn't know that. Okay, thank you for telling me. Right, when he brings home a piece of artwork, I'm not impressed. Let's just be, let's call it what it is. I'm not like, wow, son, we're rich. Like, we're gonna make money off of this. Let's sit at the museum. Like, this is amazing. I don't react that way, no. At the same time, on the other end, I'm not like, what is that? Take this junk away. Retry. I don't respond that way. That's, that'd be terrible. I'm not, I'm not displeased in like a, that is horrible way, and I'm not impressed. I'm simply in love because he's my son. I'm like, wow, son, that's amazing. Honey, get the magnets. Refrigerator, Right? And it's not because it's impressive, it's because he's my son. I love what he does, even though it's junk. <laughs> Just is. It's not impressive. He's three, okay? <laughs> that is our standing before God. That is our standing before God. We're not impressive, but he's not displeased. He's simply in love with us because we're in Christ. We are like jacked up pieces of artwork saying, Daddy, be pleased. And he's not like, man, that's impressive. No, he's like, thank you, I love it. Because it's our, his own son's righteousness that he sees. When Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and what was it that the father's voice boomed down to say? The father said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And when we are in Christ, grafted into Christ because of salvation, he looks down and we can hear the father's voice say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. You don't have to earn his approval. You can't earn his approval. Christ is the only one who could. And it comes through faith in what Jesus did living the life that we couldn't, dying the death that we deserved, and raising again three days later to prove he really was the son of God. And then verse 24 comes in like a bomb. If, if the summit 
of the Bible is Romans 3, 21 through 26, then the highest rock on the peak is Romans 3, 24. When I was hiking uh, one time at a, at a mountain in Colorado called Horn Peak, there was a, a rock that seemed to be higher than all the other ones, and it had writing all over it. It was like signatures and names and stuff. And the, the guide told us that it was, it was because that was the highest rock on the mountain. It was the highest rock on the mountain. So people would take pictures on it, write their names on it, saying they conquered the mountain. If, if this passage is the summit of the Bible, Romans 3.24 is the highest rock on that summit. And it says this, and are justified to declare someone right before God. And this, this conjugate use of the word here means forevermore. It's not just declared right. It's not just a one-time declared right. You could still go out and mess up though. No, no. This is a forevermore right standing before God right here. So declared right before God forevermore by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is God who declares. No one can bring a charge against us. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can come, no one can show up on judgment day and say, what's she doing here? Okay, like you can't bring a charge against the only one who has the right, the authority to declare someone guilty, not guilty, is God. And we are declared right by God through faith, by grace as a gift. So the means by which we receive righteousness, this required standard, is through faith. And the means by which we receive that faith is by grace. And the Greek word for grace here is charis. And it's the, it's the same root that we get our English word charity from. Charity. So, which is why the word Gift follows grace here, by his grace as a gift, because it's trying to paint this picture of a charity, a handout. And when you hear the word charity in American Southern Greek culture, that's like a bad word, right? Because we are hardworking Americans, right? Like we, we don't like that. We don't like handouts in America. We work for what we get. And so when we hear that word, we're like, ah. But here's the picture. God has justified, declared us righteous forevermore, out of charis, charity. And it carries the same weight as that when a gift was given by a high king to a peasant, a sovereign lord with authority over uh, uh, someone underneath, beneath them, who had zero means of paying them back. Gift, charity, charis. So God in his infinite wisdom and grace has decided to do infinite good to you. What has he done? He's taken out your heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, and replaced it with a heart of flesh that beats for him. He's taken your dead corpse and brought it to life. He is, he is taken, he has looked down upon your helpless state as a peasant. And though we raised our clenched fists against him. He snatched us up, and though we tried to stay his hand, he opened up our clenched fists to receive charity, grace, handout. I can't take a handout, Lord. I can't pay you back. I know you can't pay me back. That's the whole point of grace. It comes 
as a gift. It's free, and you don't need to pay me back. You can't pay me back. That's the point. Grace comes to us freely and at no cost, but at great cost to him. Because we're declared right by God forevermore, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption, there's the cost. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, there's the cost. So grace comes to us through redemption. Redemption to a Roman who would hear that word in that culture would automatically think trade, slave trade. And not like when we think of slave trade, we're thinking of our dark American history that was involved in in the slave trade, where you would buy a person as property to use as selfish gain and, and your own good, whatever you wanted, property. But the word redemption is in the context of a slave trade for a Roman who would go pay for a slave to be set free, to be taken off the trade block and set free in liberty. We were enslaved and in bondage to sin, Romans 6.20. But Jesus came and redeemed us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery. And this is the great love that God has for us. He didn't just set us free from slavery. He said, okay, now I want you to be in my family. The redemption of our slavery that is ours in Christ was paid with the price of his own son, Jesus. Redemption that is ours in Christ. How did we get it? Through faith. How did he give it? By grace. How did it happen? Through blood. So it's saying this. We were declared right by God forevermore by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God put his own son up as a propitiation. That word, propitiation, is probably one of the most important words that we can understand in the entire Bible. It means simply this. Jesus pacified or satisfied the wrath of God by his sacrificial death on, our, on the cross for our sins. John Murray, a, a Puritan, described it in more detail by saying this. The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with, with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and the love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. This is not some bad-tempered, Anger and fury that sin fueled like a pagan God would ask for sacrifice for. This is the biblical anger of God that is expressed on Jesus at the cross that is fueled by holiness and righteousness. See, God's wrath is this. It's his holy repulsion of anything that goes against his holy character. We were designed to reflect God in his character. And when we do anything outside of that design, God is repulsed by it in anger. In verse 25, Paul further qualifies the act of propitiation. He kind of goes a step further. He doesn't just say any kind of propitiation. He says propitiation by his blood. In other words, what he's trying to say here and trying to prove is that it wasn't Jesus' morals, his moral perfection, 
that redeemed us from the law. It wasn't, it wasn't his teaching. It wasn't, it wasn't his goodness. It was his death on the cross by the shedding of his blood that the God of heavens looked down and saw the blood of his own son and was satisfied by pouring out his punishment upon his own son. The innocent in place of the guilty. The perfect in place of the flawed. The spotless in place of the blemished. What grace. What charity. What love. What mercy. Amen? Why would God do such a thing? And there's two phrases in verses 25 and 26 to give us a hint to why. They indicate why. Verse 25 and 26. This was to, there's the first indicator of purpose. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that's patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show, there's the second one, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So why did God offer us a right standing? Why did he give his son to redeem us? And take the punishment that we deserved to show his own righteousness. It was to display his justice on past sins and present sins while still offering us grace and mercy. He was still just because he could still punish sin but still offer us mercy. It's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely genius. It's godly. The passing over of sins in forbearance in verse 25 is not forgiveness by forgetting. So it's not some sweeping of all the Old Testament sins under a cosmic rug. Like God was just kinda, ah, I know he's sinning but I'll just forget about it. In the Old Testament, when our forefathers sinned, God wasn't just like, ah, I really want to punish that, but I'll just let it slide this time. Here's an animal, sacrifice it. The passing over of sins here was that they were given animal sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats and spotless lambs, to be a picture of a one day perfect sacrifice, the true perfect lamb of God, Jesus. And so that all sins past, present, future would be placed upon this true lamb sacrifice so that God could remain righteous judge. And he did all of this to prove his justice and offer us grace and still be righteous. And this is where we're hitting at the center of all theology here. This is massive, this is massive. By answering that question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? We say, to save me from my sins. That would be the second answer. The first answer, Jesus suffered for God's glory. John 12, 27, 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? This is Jesus talking. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Later on, John 17, 1, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this. He says, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
We were saved by grace. Ephesians 1, 12 through 14 says for this purpose, so that, there's purpose, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why did we hear and believe and get sealed with the Spirit? To the praise of his glory. See, our theology is really weak. And we don't understand that God's glory, the greatness of all that he is, is the center. Is the center of everything, the dominating purpose in life. Does God love his people in Christ? Absolutely. Is the primary motivation for saving his people from their sins, God's love for them, no. The moment that you believe that you are the primary motivation for God saving you from your sins, you have placed yourself at the center of your theology. And that is a really, really dangerous place to be. Because if God really loved you, your husband wouldn't have cheated on you. Your daughter wouldn't be in sinful rebellion. Your kids wouldn't have gotten a divorce. And the problem is not God. It's your faulty way of thinking about why God does what he does. He doesn't exist for your glory. He exists for his glory. And he displays his glory in all kinds of ways. Pleasure and pain. Gift giving, gift removal. He gives friends, he takes friends. He gives health, he takes wealth, or health. He gives wealth, he takes wealth. And he does it all to get glory. When he gives glory, he's showing off his kindness and mercy, charity. And when he takes, he's showing that he is fully sufficient. He's all you need. That is a theology centered on the glory of God. And at the center of that glory is the cross of Christ where justice and mercy are on full display and they collide into the glory of salvation where the perfect and sinless Jesus Christ of Nazareth was slain and shed his own blood for us guilty sinners so that he could remain right and the judge displaying his glory in grace and justice when we put our faith in what he did, not the law that we can do. Look at the cross, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and believe.